This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 514 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I have a very unusual episode for you. This is the first time I've put out an episode that is technically posthumous. Eric Siena was a lieutenant at Orange County, one of my previous fire departments. He was a lieutenant, he was a squad tech, and following a seizure in the firehouse was diagnosed with brain cancer. During this period, when Eric was receiving treatment, I went and visited him a couple of times, and the second time I actually sat down with him, his wife Christy, and Tom Bull Hill, and we did an interview. As you will hear in this discussion, at this point, through his treatment, through some of the damage from the tumor, Eric's memory was failing him a little bit. It was very difficult for him to focus. So Christy stepped in and helped him with some areas. Tom filled in some of the kind of backstory when it came to the squad side. But most heartbreakingly is on May 11th of this year, 2021, Eric passed away. We hadn't published this prior because, again, of red tape, of administrative pushback, of covering this married couple while they were going through their darkest days. Now the family's had time to grieve. I felt like it was the right time to put this out and let them tell their story. There's so many elements to this. There's a cautionary tale of PPE and 
command decisions that ultimately pay forward in loss of life of so many people through exposures. There is, as I mentioned, the the support or the lack thereof of our first responders when they are afflicted, whether it's physically or whether it's mentally. And then there is the marriage, the, the, the dynamic, the relationship between Eric and Christy. So I urge you to listen to this and I urge you to pay homage, to pay tribute to only one of hundreds of first responders that succumb to cancer every single year. And what breaks my heart is Eric was someone I knew. And so many names that have adorned my back and the Hero 343 that we have here. The list that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And yet we still seem to find resistance when it comes to proactive wellness measures for our first responders. So with that being said, I introduce to you Eric and Christy Siena and Tom Bullhill. Enjoy. All right, so I'm sitting here in Eric and Christy Siena's house. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Um, and we're joined by Paul. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> He's far away from a mic. <laughs> All right, so um, for everyone listening, where on planet Earth are we right now? We're in unincorporated Lake County, Eustis. Brilliant. All right, it's beautiful, by the way. Beautiful, beautiful house. So, Eric, I want to kind of focus, obviously, with you. Um, so starting from the very beginning, tell me about where you were born and then your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. <laughs> we start way at the beginning. Uh, I was born in Rochester, New York. Um, the people that had me, let's see, it was in 1974, 12, 12, and was a dynamic and crazy kind of time uh they got divorced when i was five or six was a crazy crazy innuendo of how all that came down um yeah i would say five or six my sister doesn't remember a whole lot of that i remember a bunch of how that came down which was is what it is kind of happens how it happens Sucks for my sister, for her not to remember how it is, because it was pretty ugly and sad and pretty bad. Yeah, divorce blows. Yeah. I've, I've been, you know, the kid, yeah. well, I wasn't the kid, I was the teenager by that point, and then you know, went through my own, so it was horrible. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the people that had me, so did you stay close to mom and dad, or? Um... The biological father, no. I don't speak to him pretty much at all. When my dad, who I talk to, is who I consider my dad, Ken, uh, he'll actually be here tomorrow. He comes by. He's my dad. He's the one who I consider my guy. The biological mother is not someone who I get along with very, very well. But I do have a step monster who is who is married to my dad, and so I ha I have a really good relationship. It's kind of crazy. Would you not agree? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think it's kind of 
crazy the dynamic of people that we have because it's it is crazy because when we were getting married I had two people who were up my ass very very much about what we were going to do with Pam about her coming into our wedding she was up my ass and step monster was up my ass about what we were going to do you need step monster's name is Robin by the way she has a real name <laughs> and she's a great um, stepmother. Absolutely, mom. absolutely, she is. I, I love her to death. All, all. And Ken. Yeah, I love them both to death, and because she was in my ass the way she is supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. You're supposed to do this. Your mother needs to be there, and I'm like, no, she doesn't. No. So I'm like, all right, fine. Have at it. You want her to be there? Have at it. This one and Step Monster, oh, it's so great that you're letting them do this and you can let her be there and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, all right, fine. You can let them be there. Push comes to shove. Guess who doesn't show up? Yeah. I kind of see that coming. Yeah. That is what it is. And it's so interesting because so many of the men and women that have come on this show, their early life is you know, has an element of trauma. doesn't mm -hmm. mean it owned them, mm -hmm. but it definitely is a compounding factor. So what about um, athleticism? Were you a sports, sports person as a child? In high school, I did wrestling and track and cross country. And once we moved to Oregon, we literally went from Rochester, New York, to Oregon in high school. And we moved when I was 15 ish from Rochester, New York to Oregon in high school. It was really weird going from like not doing anything because the schools were so, well, at least the school that I went to was so separated to not doing anything to going to this little small town and getting to do wrestling and track and cross country and getting to do all this different stuff that I guess there was an opportunity, but it took probably an hour or so to get to school, where it took me 10 minutes to get to school in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So it was relatively easy. And we had fun. I mean, it was it was awesome. So it was like, okay, we'll do this and we'll do that. And it was pretty awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. What, what about career aspirations? Had you already dreamt of the fire service or was there something before? Honestly, the people that you have to blame for that are my Aunt Christy, my Aunt Claire. Aunt Lisa. Oh, yes. Aunt Lisa and Aunt Christy. No, I'm mixing the name. I'm All calling. Right, I'm so calling. Just to let you know, it, I can edit the shit out of this. Yeah. So don't worry. If, if, if we take 16 takes to get it right, it doesn't matter. I promise you. It's Aunt Lisa, and it's Aunt Colleen. Colleen and my Uncle Kenny. Gotcha. They were the people when we were down here, and I would come to visit and stuff like that, that were the people that were in the fire service. Because I would come when I was 15, work for my uncle, do this. And, and not, work for your Uncle Jasper doing lightning protection. Yeah. All, all the time. Without a license? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, did it without without a license and because my uncle 
Earl didn't have a license, couldn't drive. I drove him all over the place. I would be at his house at 3.30, 4 o'clock to load him up, to go to Miami, to go to Jacksonville, to go to wherever the hell we had to go. He'd be sleeping in the passenger seat, and I'd be messing with the radio so I could hear and blah, 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 blah. And he'd turn it down to so he could sleep. And I'd pull over to the thing. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, if I can't stay awake, we're not driving. He's like, oh, well, but, but. I'm like, that's how it is. Either I'm going to hear or I'm not driving. (laughs) So all these different things that just are cool, but not cool, but weird. It's, yeah. Yeah. So how did that factor into the fire service? Because when we came back, I got to hear Lisa talk about doing the volunteer stuff that she was doing and going to standards and doing all this stuff. And it was her that were, you know, were the three of us sitting at the table and I'm just staring at her, listening to her talk about doing stuff at the fire service and just listening and staring and listening and staring and listening and staring. And it was beautiful. And then, shit, I think it came down here shortly after, shortly after I graduated and 93 yeah i think it was just before 94 93 mm-hmm. and was doing stuff and i was like i'm going to school i'm gonna do this and it was one of those things it was difficult it wasn't easy but luckily i ended up getting in with the <sighs> crap what was that 95 90s no no i got on with the fire service in two thousand with orange county in 2000 after you went through standards again, yeah an emt again yeah again yeah. yeah he had gone through and orange county was laying off correct in 95 oh wow uh, it was it was horrible so he couldn't get a job and then um he has a friend that works she still does she works in our it right no she's training on it um, now she's training to be aoc no rochelle hmm that is true too. We I do have, have a, a friend that works in Rochelle Carnell. When you call Orange County and you hear the voice, it's her. The recording. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Absolutely, it's She's her. Been there for thirty years, and she said, "You need to apply with Orange County. They're doing their first non-cert." Yeah, because literally, I dropped everything, and then she's like, "Hey, they're doing a non-cert," and I'm like. <sighs> That's so why he's so smart. He's been through twice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you had all your certs, but then Adam, basically there were there was no work around. Your certs lapsed, and then yep. you did an on-cert program, and then yep. went through again. Yeah, beautiful. Which ended up working out because when the lieutenant's test came around, because he went through EMT twice at Valencia, he had just enough credits to take the lieutenant's test. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want to talk about someone who's making fun of someone? Her. Because I'm like, yeah, I got it. We'll do it. And she's like, how do you have all this? I was like, because I had it before. It lapsed. I had to do it again. That's how come I have it. He's laughing this. now. Yeah. And she's <laughs> like, really? How do you, really, this is how you get all this? And I'm like, I don't know. So walk me through your early, early times at the Orange County then. What was the, what was the academy like first? Because I know when I Which went time? through, it was the lowest time. Which time? Because it's two different Two different things is honestly really the difference. Okay. We'll start the first one then. The first one was honestly probably one of the best because the reason I say it was the best when we were doing stuff 
it was pretty rigid. You know what I mean? It was, this is this, this is this, this is this, this is this. And it wasn't bad. It was just, this is how it is. This is how it is. And there was no deviation. When we came in the second time with the county, stuff was different. Like it was, oh, well, it's here. Oh, well, it's there. Well, I was doing the hose pull the second time around the way I remembered it the first time around. And they started yelling at me and I'm like, okay, whatever. And Chief Mullings, rest his peace, came out and he's like, Eric, do that again. And I'm like, I just got yelled at for doing it that way. And he's like, do it that way again. And I'm like, God (laughs) damn it. I'm like, all right, so I do it that way again. And one of the instructors is coming over to yell at me because I'm doing it the way that I got yelled at for doing it. And I'm like, and he's coming over and he's starting to yell. And I'm like, I'm not being yelled at. I'm not. Don't do it. Yeah. And it was because how they, in that time, it twisted how they were doing it. And they were doing it wrong from what it was when I was doing it to how it was. And Mullings, rest in peace, rest in peace, basically is like, that's how we're supposed to be doing it. Now, Chief Mullings was the one that was in charge of the fire college because I remember him when I went through standards. Yeah. I went through it the uh, 03, 0203. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and George Mullins. Yeah. Very good guy. Indeed. So one of those things, he's like, that's how we're supposed to be doing it. And I'm like, uh, and they're all starting and arguing with each other. This is blah, 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 blah. And this is supposed <laughs> to be blah, 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 blah. And this, and I'm like, can I? go no do it again <laughs> Fuck. and it was just one of those things where it was like very rigid the first time and everything was not as rigid the second time right kind of yeah. yeah i didn't like it now where, which station did you get assigned to initially 51 51 okay so you right off the bat you were in a busy busy station i got the first fire out of the class it doesn't surprise me at 50 or 51 or 42 yeah i think i I think I was the only one that got a, yeah, I think I was the only one that got 51 or anything busy out of the fire. Yeah, I know. I was trying to go to 50. And then I remember we went, we had this presentation. It was uh, Chief Haskett. And he started talking about this one station that we have. And there's this fertilizer plant. And then the gas line runs through it. Mm -hmm. And he basically drew a circle around. And if we have an explosion, that station is done. They're all dead. Which station did I get assigned to? 73. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, which was slow, slow as shit, too. Yeah. True so story I was all day long. Clawing up the freaking walls the whole time. Finally got shipped to 70. One of my guys quit. But yeah, I don't think any of us went to a, a good, good station either. Because that's the thing. The aggressive firefighters want to stay there. They're, they're not oh, leaving. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing, too, with those stations where you get what you get and there's nothing you can do about it because you have zero time on mm-hmm, to do exactly. that. What are you going to do, complain? Yeah, you're like, <laughs> I can't do anything about where I am and what I'm doing. I can't. I can't. Yeah. I used to call Chief Reggie Price probably like once every couple of weeks. Hey, Chief, is there anywhere open yet? Is there anywhere open yet? Just to, you know, try and run more than three calls a shift. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know how many laps I did of 73. I just walked, literally walk around the station. I was so fucking bored. Oh, and yeah. train and stuff too, of course, but. So when did you start your journey onto the special operations program? 
Uh, probably two. Th- well, I think I actually started 2002 is when they started the training. Yeah, 2002 they started the training. I actually painted. <laughs> I actually painted mistakenly. Mistakenly. Um, <clears throat> Alan Garner. I may have allegedly tossed a paint can behind me and it hit something sharp and spun and and put a nice coat of orange paint on his gear. Oops. <laughs> yeah. It was not a good day. So uh got checked off in basically the beginning of 03, rotating and doing all that kind of stuff. And yeah, beginning of 03, I think I was checked off. Okay, which squad were you assigned to? I didn't get assigned anything until until Squad 3 was put in service. Squad 3, that's out of Station... 42. Well, it's 42's one, okay. Gotcha. Original crew member. Right. So what I want to do is paint the picture, because the same with JP, same with Bull. You know, the the go-to when you think of any kind of health side effect of squad is people immediately think oh it's hazmat you know or you know you're exposed to this or that but i think one of the more downplayed things is the core volume too you're responding to so much so what was it like you're at a station that's already getting slammed anyway and now you're on a squad what did it what did a normal shift look like for you depends on when it was like when we initially first started we kind of had the reins of what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it um our lieutenant basically decided that we were going here and there and we did a rotation on i think it was saturday and thursday friday saturday is maybe when we did it and basically we did a rotation and that's what we did thursday friday saturday so we did a rotation all the way around so if we were doing rope stuff, we brought people rope stuff. If we were doing whatever, that's what we brought. And it was the same thing every week until a plogger decided that that was freelancing and we weren't allowed to do it hmm. anymore. So you were going around to different stations in your battalion, basically. Basically two, two battalions. Yeah, yeah. And training with... Whoever, yeah. And not just our engine companies. It was also because we also ran with Ocoee and Winter Park. Mm -hmm. We went with everybody and we got in trouble. Right. What about call volume though? Were you out a lot? Call volume, we were pretty good with call volume because we went to Ocoee and Winter Garden and all kinds of stuff to where you'd be heading this way to... Don't worry about it. You can karate chop the mic. It's fine. You'd be heading (laughs) this way to do something. And you'd be heading back to get something, and the battalion chief would be like, hey, I need you to do this. So you'd be going back to get what you were going to get and what the battalion chief wanted you to get, and you're going to pass them again. Hey, I need you to do this. So you're literally, as you're passing, more and more and more to do to where you're trying to stay away from people because every time you passed, you got more and more, and more, and more, and more to do. And afterwards, he's like, oh, you did just such a great job. And I'm like, because how do you, how do you, how do you say that when every time you pass Wheeler, 
every time you pass Wheeler, you got something else mm-hmm. to do when you passed him going to the call and when you passed him going to the truck. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Now, what about notable incidents? Are there any that you look back on now where you consider there was a significant exposure? Where I think significant exposure for like a call? Um, yeah, I mean, any, any, any exposure to something that has the potential of causing disease down the road. Oh, a lot of them. Puts a ball. There you go. Quite a few of them. But when we were on the, you know, the original squad, the 12 of us, um, we hardly ever saw Station 50. Started at 51 and then went to 50 because it was nonstop more training than anything else. And then once they accepted the squad, the county, then we got a good call load because there was only one. Mm-hmm. So you'd go, you'd go from here to Lakeland, here to Coco, here to wherever when the calls came in. Um, but then just learning, you know, uh, a lot of hazmat, um, but a lot of fires, ton of fires. And there's a lot of exposure in there. You know, when we learned about fuels, diesel fuels and, and plugging cars and doing that, I can tell you many times we went in it and just gear because we weren't, you know, prepared for the other. Didn't have the stuff right off the that's bat. I've done numerous plugs and that's all I ever wore. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's okay to be underneath a rig in your street clothes trying to plug a leak? Well, we did it for years. <laughs> Is it all right? Probably not. No. But no. I mean, there's, there's a lot. That's Even the thing. in bunker Knowledge gear. And then that was still the era where you didn't wash them that much. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and then, so kind of adding on that, because obviously we're going to talk about health and that's the beeping in the background is is eric's machine no it's no it's good it's it's illustrating the the whole point that we're here is there's a knock-on effect now for you being old school original squad one how many of those original squad guys have encountered health issues uh seven seven in the past out of 12 there we go so i mean that's and these are all it's young, you know, fit men and women originally that stood on the diamond and yep. were probably the alphas of the community. No, that's just of the 12 original. When you look at the whole squad, all three, we've lost more squad guys per unit than three or four. Probably than all of them put together in the whole county. Yeah. You add up all of them, or at least 10 of them, we've, the squad unit has lost many more yeah so when you look at that as a percentage you know that's the people we've lost obviously we've got a lot of people that are you know physical ailments mental health challenges whatever it is you know to to refute that or to suppress that i think is just downright wrong yeah it is and i can remember you know some of the chiefs back then we go to have meetings and they weren't even they weren't even keeping track of how many calls the squad ran oh really no no, not for the first couple of years. We had to keep our own logs on how many we ran and present it to them to see if it was worth keeping. Hmm. Yeah, it was horrible. All right, well, back to Eric. Yeah. Swing it back around there. All right, so then kind of focusing now, as, you know, as I mentioned, there's the beeping. You've got a device strapped to your head. Yeah, we so call it the magic box. The magic box. 
So tell me Magic Hat. Magic Hat. <laughs> through your own personal, you know, experience, like was there any point earlier in your career where you just felt the impact of shift work and, you know, the 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 toll of the job that we do? Yeah. She's not gonna like what I have to say though. Please. Rocket Boulevard was one of those calls where trying to keep track of stuff that sucked. Kept a lot of stuff, kept a lot of stuff, but uh, it was hard keeping track of that. The reason why I say she's not going to like it is I didn't talk to the captain. I did not talk to the lieutenant after that call. And so you're talking about a pretty traumatic call? It wasn't traumatic. He didn't give a fuck about what was going on with that call and why. And you were able to tell me what the call was and kind of the situation around it? So if you were pulling up to a call and there was hazmat whatever on the fence, what does that mean to you? That you need to at least consult ERG before you even do anything else? Correct. Guess what our people did? Went straight in. Yeah. So. The lieutenant was a former squad tech. Mm-hmm. That should have known better. Yeah. He's no longer with us. He died within eight or nine months, or some eighteen months of that call, I think. Probably. So there was a hazmat exposure out of that incident. Oh, absolutely. That that was the thing with that particular call, was uh, me looking it up and spouting off what I was finding because at the day it wasn't something as easy as a phone. You had a computer. They had to get the phone or the connection going, get all that stuff going. And once it was going, you could blah, 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 and talk to them about what it was. So I'm telling them that this company had 10 or 10 or so different things around the United States and stuff across the U.S., all this different stuff. And one of the things, not this particular one in Orlando, but that this place could store stuff for, they could store stuff for chems. Not necessarily radiation. They couldn't do radiation, but they could have it there en route to somewhere else. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. So it has all these different things that it can do, how and why it can. So the potential was huge for all kinds of nasty stuff. He didn't give a fuck. Zero fucks. So we get there and it's a building and we see this like people that are touching stuff and i'm like what the fuck is going on so we end up with all three squads there and there's two guys that are literally like hazmat guys like if they said don't touch that and stay a hundred feet away from it Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah, like okay, and ke- and keep a hundred people feet away. You know, whatever they said about X, I would do it because they're the guys and they were engineers. And it's whatever they said about the chemical, 
it would be what it is. Um, that was Mike Hill and Engineer Stevenson. And Stevenson was one of those guys where if he said Chemical X does whatever, as I'm looking it up, and then you look it up and you're like, say that again? <laughs> and he would go off and he would like out of the blue. Just from the knowledge. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you, re- why am I looking it up one? You're a walking ERG. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, how is that a real thing? How, how do you, and I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. That's why we have experts. Though. Absolutely. You know? So those two guys, two entirely different people. Well, two entirely, yeah. yeah, two entirely different people. Yeah, two entirely different people. Two, like, I loved Tommy all day long. I tolerated Hill because there was times I wanted to choke him. <laughs> but he was a really, really good hazmat tech. But out of the people on the call, we had 12 people on the call, hazmat techs. Those were the two guys when the, about hazmat. What they say. They didn't give. The lieutenants did not give two flying fucks what they were saying about, mm-hmm. so, about it. So let me ask you that. So just because we have, you know, we have after action reports where people have died and we're like. What did he say about an after action report? Like zero. Yeah. yeah. They, they didn't care. But I mean, even before that. So from you specifically. When I say after action report, I'm talking about people have died. It's made yeah. the news. The after action report is forced, not volunteered. With you being in that position, looking at these particular lieutenants, what do you think factored in that made them act that way? Were, were they always, did they always seem like ego was the biggest thing? Were they chasing the stripes, didn't have the operational knowledge? Because there's a lesson to be learned from that particular call. They were obviously. all lieutenants. They never went anywhere else. I mean, honestly and truly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ego. They didn't want to hear with the squad, I'd say. I mean, get back. first lieutenant, he was a squad guy for a while, and then he made lieutenant, and he was basically, I guess you were saying, being lazy. He just kind of didn't care. Like, he yeah, was getting I, ready to retire, and he just didn't treat it like you should have. He didn't take it as seriously. It was horrible. Like, there was an easy way... If this was the building and everybody was coming off this side and walking back through the yuck, there was a way to bring people off the left side on concrete with a pit. We could have brought them all through the pit, washed it all into or washed them all on the concrete, washed it all into the pit, got them out of the stuff, put them down to their underwear. I don't care. Yeah. And got them all clean the way they should have been. It didn't matter to that particular lieutenant. Yeah, because there's mistakes. I remember one specific one. I was, I want to say it was B shift. Anaheim, I was A. I think it was. Um, Great department, great people in there normally. But we had this one fire and it was an outside tank. And I want to say it was hydrochloric or sulfuric acid. And they just hadn't identified it. They'd kind of gone moth to the flame. And there were pictures of the guys sitting on a Keely coil with the water bubbling around them. You know, so just a, a huge mistake. Very, very rare in that 
department like i said they're very very good but it happens <laughs> but once you like you say once you get to the point where you're like okay we've screwed up then you have to have the humility to listen to the people with the right ideas to reverse engineer, like how the hell do we unfuck what we just found ourselves into the point where we're not going to so end up with a dead fireman. What happens when you have a hazmat guy on scene who's telling the chiefs in the department that what the hazmat guys want to do for the department's wrong? So instead of doing a hazmat call, you end up doing a reverse hazmat call. And I had that particular lieutenant tell me that I was being stupid and wrong for not going in. Yeah. So that's just one of the actual exposures and like mental health wise, the organizational stress, because that's what I've battled with, you know, my last place. You know, there's always things where we're just undertrained and I'm like, look, all I'm asking is to do more work, not less. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you just you just push down. So you mentioned that incident as one of the things when you look back that was detrimental um what were what was the ripple effect of that call like what was it like for, for the you? county well just for you in general like for me in general yeah you hear i was an asshole before mm-hmm. that's what because so otherwise frustrated. yeah because otherwise nobody listened to me so i was an asshole and either if you were going to be on the truck with me it was like this. If you weren't going to be on the truck with me, get the fuck off. So you're just falling back to your training, basically. Yeah. Making sure you're meticulous. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing about that call is Eric ended up being reprimanded oh. for being disrespectful to a lieutenant. Mm. That was not a hazmat person at all. But Yeah. And it's to top everything off. <laughs> the person who they should have been listening to got written up for being just saying disrespect you know being disrespectful about his anger about how the situation was being handled yeah and guess who's having problems now that lieutenant Mm -hmm. think about all the people that got sick or died after that there's a lot just from that one call so let me give you no let eric eric knows better okay so yeah so so as Bull was saying about people getting sick from that call, what was the ripple effect of ill health from that exposure? <sighs> Crap. There's tons of different people that aren't attributing what they have to that call. Tons of them. That particular lieutenant who I wouldn't piss on if he was on fire, I wouldn't. Not, not nothing. But his problem in my opinion, not just the fire service, but particularly that call. But there's tons of people. Um, One of the guys who's actually an engineer on one of the squads, he was there rolling up hose. Mm -hmm. All that stuff on it. Yeah, They're all starting to call Eric and say, do you think it was that call? I was on that call. Mm -hmm. Do you you have an exposure report? Do you have any paperwork I can have? from this call as a there is none jp was on the call shaky was on the call ganley was on the call byron Rhodes is on the call stevenson so there's people battling cancer or already passed of cancer and if you think about the ratio of the people that were on the call to how many have passed away and this was in 2006 2005 2006 something 2000 2006 yeah.
So, so you said um, Shaky, JP, nice. Ganley, all, all the Orange yeah. County people we lost recently were all on yeah, that call. One of the guys, one of the chiefs who's retired has a thing from his toes to basically above his knee because he wore boots. But like the rubber, the three quarter boots, the three quarter boots that you're not supposed to wear. Oh, the old school yeah. boots. Uh-huh. Yeah, and he's got crap. chemical burns up his legs, and he's retired, and they won't cover it because he didn't say something in time. And okay. he's now retired and battling that. Yep. And he said that the runoff of the fire, the water was melting people's station yep. boots and shoes, gloves. 22 sets of bunker gear disintegrated. Yeah. So what's been looked at so far is they found 22 sets of gear that had to be replaced. So that's the only receipt we got. So do you think they found my PDH? Do you think they found my write-up? Or do you think they found, what do they call the... When you get written or written up or whatever. So just to, just because I know I'm just going to repeat because yeah. of the microphone. So you said that your all the uh, the naughty boy paperwork made it safely into the file. There but is the exposure no naughty, reports. There is no naughty boy form. No, I'm talking about for you. There is not. Oh, no, there isn't no, even no, for you. No, your write up. Correct. Yeah, My write up form is there. That's what I mean. You you were naughty. Correct. You're a naughty boy. But that made the it stuff there. for us to be safe. Mm-hmm. Is not there. Yeah, is gone. No, no, nothing is there. Nothing. That's the shit. That is probably the worst part of it. Is you can find my write up that says blah 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 blah, but to protect us is gone. Yeah. The company went on went under, and they used robots to clean up after the fire. No humans. Because they knew how bad. Yeah, I mean that, that yeah, speaks, the fire was. That speaks volumes, and I, I can say, you know, just my experience with the county when the drive cams came in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I've ever told this on on a podcast or not, but we the engine got banged out on a fire, and then me and uh, my medic were in the bay. And well, it's kind of weird that just they did, and. Um, they were basically dispatched tone had never come through the station. So they gave us a, a second tone. It finally came through. We threw on our gear, seatbelt, you know, ready to go. And there's, uh, it was orange and, God, what's the other road? Anyway, it's a T junction. Um, it has me on the drive cam slowing to like six miles an hour. Lights and sirens on the way to a fire. And I got written up for not coming to a complete stop. Now that, complete stop thing was in action for what a few months and then a few weeks later they threw it out it took i went to the union the union said it was an unwinnable case they couldn't help me i mean you gotta be fucking kidding me i've been paying dues for how long now mm-hmm. and this anyway so regardless so i just forgot about it i mean whatever piece of paper you know i don't i honestly don't care um and then a year later i was told that all those were being thrown out now and but the write-up still said that i almost killed my crew civilians and everything it was dismissed but it still kept all that in there so i mean i know from from that particular organization that you know i mean right now the fitbit's being closed down i mean there's all this stuff but when it comes to writing us up they they were on point but when it comes to any prevention health stuff me personally my own testimony and my own vision or perspective was 
if there was the same gusto that was behind writing people up towards health, everyone would be in a much better place. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly. I don't disagree with you whatsoever. It'd be, it'd be refreshing if the same point was for the bad and the good. It'd be refreshing. Yeah. Well, transitioning then to you know your own um, you know wellness issue that you have now. So tell me about that day. I only remember part of it. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> so we can get uh, you know, Christy to fill in as well. We'll make sure we get the microphone nice and close. Yeah, but you're gonna start have with to... your perspective first. Um, I was at work for what I remember is just before dinner. And then it was pretty cool. We had a <laughs> group of three people that were filling their boat not with the boat key that they opened, with the portal key. Um, what he's trying to say is <laughs> um, they had a hazmat call basically that yeah. day, early that day, where a guy brought his giant boat. By the way, I'm not a hazmat tech anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and he put the gas nozzle in a rod holder and not into the... The gas tank. Gotcha. That's what I was trying to say. And gotcha. Not working. So that, so that was a call you were on that day. Yeah. Okay. So that was one of those things where pretty much the guys I give a crap about on a shift, all four of them were on the truck. So it was relatively easy to, okay, blah, 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 blah. And then I used to do grounding, as she said, for a long time. And they're like, Jeff's like, hey, you going to help him do it? Yes, fine. I'll do it. So we do that. I help the grounding, you know, and then they're trying to, because it was like 70 gallons that they pumped. Before in, they realized it. The in the boat. What the hell? Yeah, bro. Yeah. 70 gallons. Horrible. <laughs> so they're doing the stuff and horsing around and getting it. And I'm just like, man, this, this is horrible. And he's like, yeah, it does. So they're horsing around doing the stuff and end up going back to the station. And we're eating and stuff like that. And they're all waiting for me to do something to the student who it's her last shift. And they're expecting me to do something for her because do I do stuff like that? Yeah, he means joke around, you yeah. know. Yeah, right. The, the, the right, uh, the right uh, of passage. Absolutely, not hazing. Correct. Just there you was know, some congratulations. You made it through. Mm -hmm. Except that uh, I did the. Now there were people that outranked me there, but no one was senior to me. Everybody was hired after me. Right. So I had a seizure, and. Tucked and and they thought I was joking around until the chief grabbed a hold of me and he's like, realized I wasn't, put me down to the ground. And as he says, he was scooping stuff out of my mouth, started barking orders to do whatever. And then I remember... After that, because I 
literally was eating, and then I woke up at the hospital. The stuff in between that is her. Yeah, let's move the microphone over a little bit, and Christy, fill in the fill in the blanks. Trying to think of where to start. <laughs> so what, what were you told? So we, we were basically um, Eric, you know, was. I got a phone call. I was with my daughter at a scouting event, and I was really confused, and I didn't want to answer the phone in the middle of the ceremony that was going on for rank advancements and stuff like that. But I saw that Chief Davis was calling me and I had just worked for him the day before on overtime. And I thought maybe I did something or he needed something. So I answered the phone. I answered it in the middle of the ceremony and I was going to just say, I'll call you back. But he goes, I need you to be at 41 right now. And I'm like, is this a joke? Did I do something really bad yesterday? Am I in trouble? Like he sounded so upset and gruff and, you know, no high. And, and he said, Eric just had a massive seizure at the dinner table. He's not breathing. He's turning purple. We're bagging him. Um, we need you at 41 right now. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a good 40 minutes away from the station. So what hospital are you taking him to? I'll meet you at the hospital. So as I'm driving to the hospital, they kept calling me over and over to give me updates. And I kept saying, he's still not breathing on his own. He's still not awake. He's not seizing anymore. Um, they were thinking about intubating him. But they didn't. And then I got another phone call that said he was just starting to come around and he was starting to fight people because he was confused and they had to restrain him. And then he was at the hospital. And when I got there, the whole crew was there. Chiefs were there. And um, the medic that treated him was in the hallway crying. So it was rough. Just to put it into perspective. So you, like you said, you remember being in the hospital. So this wasn't a normal seizure. This is... A long, long, life-threatening seizure that you went through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Christy, after you got there, tell me about, you know, the when, when you started to get him back. Um, as soon as I got there and walked in the room, he looked at me and started crying. He, like, was happy I was there, I guess. It took me a while to get there. He was starting to come around. He still didn't really understand what happened. But um, the fire chief said, I was just going to sit here until you got here. And then he said his goodbyes and um, just, I was happy to see him awake and looking good for what I was hearing. Mm -hmm. You know, he was seemed alert, just confused. That must have been terrifying, though. Yeah, it was definitely. Um He'd never had a seizure before. There wasn't any kind of, I guess, signs or symptoms leading up to it. It was kind of a shock that he's normal, and then all of a sudden this happens. Massive seizure out of nowhere. So I started thinking immediately toward a tumor or something in his head, or maybe a bleed. Being a paramedic, I you know, I was thinking what would cause that all of a sudden. And um, while I was thinking that, he started having paralysis on the left side, 
numbness, tingling, paralysis, facial droop. And I was like scared that he was having a stroke. So they did a stroke alert on him. And after they did a rapid CT scan, they saw that he didn't have a bleed, but they saw hyperdensity in his brain, like a mass. And they said they would need to do an MRI to see better what that was, but they didn't think he was having a stroke anymore. And that it was a post-seizure paralysis type thing that happens sometimes. So being the medic I was, I, I it was funny because I kept um, stroke testing him. Every time he said something happened, I'm like, <laughs> squeeze my hands, you know, Who's the stick president? out your tongue, who's the president, <laughs> <laughs> smile, you know, all that stuff. I just, you know, I'm glad I was there to be his advocate and be, make sure that I brought things to people's attention. Um, when he had his surgery, that was really hard because I couldn't be at the hospital while I was there for eight days because of COVID. Yeah. I mean, that just compounded everything. And having two craniotomies and being confused and not knowing where you are and you have no family there. I can't imagine what he went through. But the nurses called me like twice a day to give me updates. The doctor called me. And so that was good. But it was just hard not to be there to advocate for him. One of my friends that works there went to visit him and let me FaceTime him. And I noticed he had facial droop. And I called the neurosurgeon and I was like, are you guys going to do something about the stroke on his face? And they're like, oh, we're watching it. We are aware he has a brain bleed right now. We're hoping it stabilizes. If not, we're going to go back in in the morning and do another craniotomy to stop the bleed. So, And the bleed was, was happening? In the space where they removed part of the tumor. Okay, I was going to say. So so it wasn't initially bleeding. It was after the surgery that it started the, bleeding. The problem was he started kind of going downhill rapidly. So they rushed the surgery and gave us two days notice. So we didn't stop all blood thinners in a week like they wanted. It was only a couple days. And I said, well, he has headaches. So he's been taking ibuprofen every day. He hasn't had it for two days, but it's not a week like you guys want. And then the doctor had him on aspirin or something. So they said that shouldn't be a big deal. It's not like he's on warfarin, Coumadin, or one of them blood thinners that he should be okay. And they think that it was just a slow bleed because of those medications weren't completely out of his system when he had the surgery. So they ended up putting a drain in, and they took it out before he came home. All right. Well, I want to I want to go back to Eric, and then we'll just do a quick thing with you. You say you got to go soon. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to give Eric the microphone for a sec, so, so Eric, from your perspective, like you said, waking up in the hotel in the hotel, you wish they're waking up in the hospital. Excuse me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's completely sterile and devoid of people. Um, especially in COVID, just, just tell me, you know, what that was like from, you know, a, a firefighter that was joking just moments before to finding yourself in a gown and, you know, going through that terrifying event and not having the family support around because of the COVID thing as well. Uh, I, there was family support. Having the firefighter family was there. The, the for When he had the seizure event and he was hospitalized, he was surrounded by 
um, fire department constantly. Okay. But um, that was January. Okay, gotcha. The surgery so, so, was so in April. Gotcha. And to get a biopsy of the tumor to see if it was malignant or not. Gotcha. So then, okay, so then that's when COVID happened, and that's when he was by himself for that eight-day stay. So, what has the last few months been like for you? Honestly, uh, I hate to say it, but I think she woke me up like six days ago. That's how it feels to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're just missing big chunks of time, basically, in your mind. Yeah. Sadly, um, there were things that I didn't know that uh, she had told me, the doctor told me, my sister told me, you name it. No clue. None. Until six days ago. So so what she told me six days ago was that apparently the doctor and all that stuff and Christy and Amber all said that uh, I potentially could die in a year or six months. So when she told me that, I was like, what? So it was a shock to me, and I feel bad for her having to tell me again. It was really rough when he came home from the hospital. Um, The biopsy came back before he came home. The doctor tried to explain it to him, but he didn't understand that he had cancer and that it was already grade four, which is like stage four, but tumor brain tumors are considered grade. Um he didn't understand what they were saying. So when he got home and we were signing the cancer presumption paperwork and getting that all squared away, he was confused. And he's like, am I retiring? And I'm like, no, this is for the cancer presumption bill. So they can help pay for your medical stuff. And, and, and he's like, I have cancer. I'm like, yeah, I told you yesterday. I I think I broke his heart five days in a row telling him that he had cancer over and over and over again. again. It was really rough. So he also, I thought he understood, but it wasn't right away that I gave him a timeline because I didn't want to really talk about it to him until he was better. But we were coming home from the doctor and it probably was a month or so after his surgery. So he was doing better. And the doctor, he was asking questions saying, like, is this curable? Like, what do I, what is my outlook? And I said, it's not curable. Um, the average life expectancy where you are right now, they said in April, was a year to a year and a half with treatment. That's very aggressive um, brain cancer, the worst that there is. So... He, I guess it didn't sink in. So the other day, he he was having trouble with his speech and memory and stuff. And he, I guess he started to think maybe I'm going downhill. So he said, do you think I have like, how much time do you think I have left? Do you have think I have three days, three years, three months, three weeks? 
And I said, well, back in April, the doctor said the average for what you have and the stage you're in is a year to a year and a half, but you're young and strong and we're trying some extra treatments and stuff and you could potentially have longer. And he acted like he'd never heard that before. And we've all convinced him that he has been told that Oh, I'm sure I how am. deadly it is and everything. Yeah. He knows that yeah. he just it just didn't register when I had told him. That's not something you want to talk about every day. No, absolutely not. Well, I want to bring Paul in just quickly, and I want to get back to to your journey, but just to let him go. So, I I don't know if it was you that told me originally that Eric had even had the seizure. I know I found out randomly through someone very very early, and I forget who it was, um, and. You know, you've spent now the last few years being around the the impact of what's happening to our men and women. And you know, and you've even had people that you've worked with that are now passed away. You yourself, you know, survived through a stroke. So what has been your observation of when obviously Eric and then other men and women you've been around that have served this whole time, that it clearly it's attributed to what we do as a profession. Um, the support they're getting from their departments and, and um, you know, enabling them to take the time off to focus on healing? Um, from what I see from an outsider, it's not very good. It's like individuals, you know, reach out. From what I've seen, individual men and women who are close um, try to do their best to help out. But as a department as a whole, I haven't seen anything in any department I've been around that outstanding for what they're going through. I mean, when you look at this, and I know from experience now that this is the biggest thing in life. You're dying. It's confirmed that you will. I mean, what else is there but to put all hands on deck for this family. Mm-hmm. You know, I get excuses sometimes. Well, if we do it for one, we do it for all of them. Well, yeah, Absolutely. you will have to do that. But it's not like a million people it's happening to at one time. Yeah. Well, because what I see is, you know, a lot of the stuff that you guys have talked about since I've been here and since we were last time was, you know, I'm trying to get, this paperwork signed so I can get my retirement so I can, you know, go and get this medical treatment. To me, again, from the outside looking in, but having worked for multiple departments and again, like Bull, seen a lot of people that have been through all these, you know, physical and mental health issues is the last thing any of these families should have to deal with is fucking red tape. Yeah. Like we should and be banding together and making sure that you guys, that's, that's all cool. you have to worry about is getting to your medical appointments and trying to heal. And I haven't seen one advocate in one department where they go to their house and they sit down and say, let us help you do this. And we need to do it now. And then be there for bat for those people with the departments, with workman's comp, with whoever it is. You know, it's dropped in our hands to do it. And most of us don't know how to do it or it's hard enough to deal with and keep our minds straight, especially taking care of the person you love and then having to do this, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've always made that that you know comparison. The military has the VA. Is it perfect? No, but it has the VA. 
like first responders, you know, when you're still working and you get sick, a lot of times you're kind of abandoned. It's definitely if you've retired and you get sick, this is zero. You're on Cobra and then you're, you know, then you're at the mercy of whatever insurance plan you can find. And it's disgusting. These men and women have served. I mean, as we've mentioned, we've lost so many people. We've got, you know, many people that are fighting their own fight now, whether it's mentally or physically. And, you know, I just think that we need to completely reframe it because we are abandoning the very men and women that are risking their lives every day for complete strangers. Oh, absolutely. It's like someone's waiting for something to happen and no one's standing up and doing anything. Mm -hmm. And I see that even with a lot of the people I had on the show. When it comes to Sons of the Flag or, you know, uh, uh, Next Rung, you know, all these, these are started by Navy SEALs, Rangers, firefighters, police officers, because they see a lack and these giant well-funded organizations that they belong to have dropped the ball. And I'll, you know, I'll say it, I've said it a lot. You know, look at the, the union that we belong to, that we paid yeah. our whole life. I think there's a lot more fucking work they should be doing. Yeah. I really do. Talking about IFF yeah, no, no, on, yeah. on a national scale, yeah, absolutely on a national scale. Yeah, but um, for me, it's it's like I've seen you know the local unions banding together, and that's that's very important. But on a national scale, the the work week, the physical and mental health, I'm not seeing a lot of that. You know, even even the decom practices. If you look at it, it's a couple of Swedish dudes that have really pushed decom. When you look at it, you know, the the clean cab concept comes out of healthy firefighters out of Sweden. You know, so I think there's so much more we can do within an organization from the administration side. There's a lot of ownership too that we have to do ourselves. But, you know, as as a you know union paying member my whole career, I look back and I look at other industries and I'm well, they have work week standards, they have health and safety, they have, you know, uh, the 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 wellness element i know construction their mental health stuff is is incredible if you look at some areas you know so we in this organization think oh they're doing everything and then when you step outside and if you have the same perspective ball and you look in you're like i don't think so i really don't there's some amazing people in local unions that are really bending over backwards but all these national jews you know, is it really having the, are they, are they the best of the best that are in the, the mental health elements that we've got at the moment? I know I've, I've met a lot of really good mental health people and, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if the, we have the best in our organization, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. So Chrissy, yeah, just one kind of tangent I want to go on just to understand the whole family dynamic. So prior to this event, you had hit a wall mentally. So tell me about you know, when you realized something was wrong from your perspective prior to, to Eric's seizure? Hmm. <laughs> um, I was having a lot of outburst, um, anger, sleep disturbance, panic attacks, and I knew we were fighting, and it was because of this. So I knew I needed help. So I had been going to UCF for stores like on a maybe monthly, weekly basis, and they decided that I would be a good candidate for their three-week program that they have. I can't remember what it's called. So... You said it was exposure therapy? Exposure therapy, yeah. Kind of like a desensitizing type thing. You go over it and go over it and the calls in depth... So, January, I went through three weeks of treatment for PTSD. Um, 
it went really well and I'm glad that I went. Um, but when I got home on Friday from the three weeks of treatment and Eric had been off taking care of the house and the animals and kids while I was away, um, he went back to work the following Monday, which was just days after I returned from my treatment. And that's when he had the seizure at work. So I kind of got hit all at the same time. Right. And then with that diagnosis, did you have any resistance with the, you know, trying to, trying to get help through the PTSD yes, side? Um, I guess I, I was torn whether to make a work comp claim or not. I was kind of trying to handle it on my own because I didn't know what kind of doctors they were going to make me go to. I wanted to be able to tr- choose my own kind of thing. And finally, I made the decision in March to make a claim and reading the law and everything where it says you have a certain amount of time and dealing with him. It wasn't it was on the back burner for a little bit, taking care of Eric after he was having his seizures and stuff taking him to doctor's appointments and all that. I just kind of kind of put it in the back and I had a few people reach out and said, you need to make a claim. You need to like, you need help. You need, you still need more help. So I made a claim. So I've been going through more treatment weekly since March for PTSD I got a little resistance at first because it seemed like the company that Orange County hired to for workers comp as they were looking at my records and talking to me that they were trying to say that they didn't want to cover it because I had pre-existing PTSD because I was at the pulse shooting. How would you not be covered apart from being a career firefighter and having your husband have a severe you know, wellness issue, how would that be a negative towards a claim? I don't understand. The law went into effect in 2018 and the pulse shooting was in 2016. Um, They would let me use EAP for the pulse shooting, but it wasn't a work comp claim because it wasn't, the law didn't make them take care of us back then. So they basically basically disregarded every other call that you'd run since pulse because pulse specifically was because supposed I to be sought help thing. after pulse yeah and they were trying to say that it was pre-existing and my psychiatrist is saying that it's cumulative absolutely and how is it how could it not be it just you just overflow you know yeah at one point so and it'll bring up stuff from the bottom as it's overflowing that just uh, a whole lot of stuff i've seen throughout my career I'm known as the shit magnet. <laughs> I had a, a shit magnet patch that my husband gave me. Uh, and I had that on my helmet before the pulse shooting happened. Cause it was already known that if there was a bad call, I was on it. Like it didn't matter where I worked. If I was at the slow station, the busy station, it followed me everywhere over time. People will say, you get all the good calls all the time. And I'm like, you can have them. I'm tired of, not being able to sleep at night from what I've seen, you know? Mm. Well, tell me about just, just the, I mean, you don't have to go in depth by by any means, but Pulse was basically two blocks from my old first year at 70. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we passed it every single time, went to ORMC. 
I'd actually moved to Reedy Creek by that point, um, and I was overseas. I was in Portugal. The creek had that um, alligator attack that killed the small mm-hmm. kid. We had the Pulse shooting, and then there was that pop star that was murdered in Orlando. The day before Pulse. Yeah, so um, that whole week. And I was I was overseas. I'm like, what the hell is going on in Orlando? Um, so, you know, I, I because I'd moved departments, I wouldn't have been on that call, and I think it was a... It was a B shift and I was A in the county too. So I probably wouldn't have been on from that point either. You know, where were you assigned and how did you find yourself? Okay. There? So I took the, Eric and I took the lieutenant's test and we did pretty well. So they anticipated promoting us very soon. So they sent us, they put us on days for two weeks to go to a week of command school and a week of lieutenant's academy. So once they got to us, we'd be ready to be promoted to lieutenant. We'd be checked off, certified. <laughs> so I was on days. And in Orange County, you make a little bit more when you're on a 40-hour work week versus 56. So I was in the week between command school and lieutenant's academy. And I was trying to pick up all the overtime I could at the higher rate of pay. So I, <clears throat> I worked Friday night at 72 for the second half after I got out of Lieutenant's Academy. Um, the next morning, my relief called in sick. And she asked if I could stay for another 24 because he needed a preceptor. And I'm a preceptor. And I said, sure. Why not? Give me the money. you know. <laughs> so I stayed at 72. We were at the hospital. Um, we were at East, actually. And there was an Orlando rescue there with us. We had just offloaded our patient. And Orlando started freaking out. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. What is going on? And they're turning up their radios. And they were saying, there's 20 people shot in the front of Pulse. And I knew where Pulse was. And I knew that Orlando is a smaller department. And that I know they have 17 fire stations. And I know if 20 people are shot, that's at least 20 trauma alerts. And they would not, they would need mutual aid or automatic aid, or I'm not sure how it goes, but, um, we quickly put our rescue back together and headed down the 408 as fast as we could. And we decided to drive back to our first due through there mm-hmm. to jump the call because we were like, we need to go help. Yeah, go available. Yeah. So dispatch was very confused because we never said we cleared the hospital. We, I guess we were all, we forgot to tell them on the radio and they started dispatching units and we're like, we're at orange and 408. We'll take the call. And they're like, we didn't, we don't show you available. And we're like, we are, we are. So we were probably the second or third orange County unit on scene. So 50 was already there in 51 and then us. So, um, it was chaos. I was there till um, shift was, change. Who was, there? who was there? I ended up getting pulled off of the rescue. As and I was helping out Chief Haskett in command. As what? Who, who were you called? Who, who were you called? Oh, I was Battalion Five uh, or Four. Oh, really? Um, so, Lieutenant's Academy, and now you're... Yeah, <laughs> it was very chaotic scene, and, you know, Orange, or Orlando was in command. They had our AOC at the command post. Um, so, Chief Haskett was on overtime, another known shit magnet <laughs> that's now retired. He, 
as we were waiting, because it, it's like we had a mad rush of patients and then there was nothing for a while that we couldn't get to the rest of the victims safely. So we were just staging. And I knew Haskett was teaching Lieutenant's Academy and Command School. So I'm like, hey, while we're waiting, can I hang out with you and learn some command stuff? Because I'm probably never going to be on a call this big ever again. And I guess as we were working together, he realized that he needed my help. So I ended up getting pulled off the rescue and put into helping him with command. Because Orlando put um, Orange County in charge of transport. Yeah, because a lot of our men and women was, were shuttling uh, all kinds of people to RMC, weren't they? And yeah, then, and they, then the they made Orlando Einsteins was. into, they made it into a triage. Orlando was triaging and sending them over to us to transport without triage tags. So it was kind of, I re-triaged everybody. So we've learned, you know, people, it, it was a crazy call, but that would have really helped in that situation. Is it, there was blood on people that weren't shot there, you know, you're trying to figure out what's wrong with them. They're panicking, screaming. They don't, they can't answer your questions. And, you know, it, it was the worst thing I've ever been at, you know, for sure. And I've been at a lot of bad calls. So I don't know. Eric seems to be proud of me because I was working with somebody that he admires so much. Mm-hmm. Haskett was one of the best. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Basically, when Haskett has to say that she is Battalion 4 and what she says is what he says, do it. Over the radio, well, that's a big deal. Yep. Dispatchers came up to me after because there was a lot of like after action you know, a lot of meetings that happened after this. I got to meet Comey, the head of the FBI, and Lor- Loretta Lynch, the state attorney, not state attorney, but the attorney general, I think, or okay. something. Some, some government yeah, agency. Yeah, she wanted to meet, and they were asking questions about stuff. So anyway, the dispatchers were starting to realize as we were talking about what was going on that I was the female voice that they heard that was saying they were battalion four. <laughs> Because it was just, it was a lot for Chief had to be on Orlando's tack, and then Orange County were in charge of the transport, so Orange County's trying to keep track of us, so I ended up with my radio that its ID says Rescue 72 whenever I key up, and I'm saying I'm Battalion 4. They went with it because they realized it was a big cluster, so they didn't question it, but they were, they always wondered what was going on. Because he couldn't answer the radio all the time. So I turned into kind of a command tech. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I had um, John Spearer on the show who was at the uh, Aurora shooting, cinema shooting. And, you know, he was saying the same thing that, you know, the the start triage that we have, which, you know, makes a lot of sense to us. I mean, it really does. There's a lot of common sense behind it. But, you know, you've got people running out of a cinema who have been gassed. 32 can do. Respirations are going to be higher than 30 probably not going to be able to follow directions because they're fucking terrified Mm -hmm. you're not going to see cap refill that's for sure you know so it's not um ridiculing the system but it's when it's pressure tested you're like okay in theory it was great but the reality is you know more of a visual triage is probably the most you know the closest to reality because yeah like you're covered in blood you know are you hurt i don't think so then no they they were telling me i was hiding under bodies Mm mm-hmm yeah. And they were ble- the bodies were bleeding on me, and I'm not shot, and I'm not hurt. 
but they're drenched and but mentally you're hurt. Oh yes, yeah. definitely. I'm like, you still need to go to the hospital if not for shots or something. Cause who knows what was bleeding <laughs> yeah. on you yeah. and mental also, but I couldn't even imagine yeah. being in their shoes and fast forward to when I went to um, UCF restores and I ended up in a group with someone I saved. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Now UCF restores has a great, a great uh, reputation around here. It's something that I haven't, haven't actually interviewed anyone from there yet, but I need to, because I've heard a lot of people that have had good results, but obviously it's not a um, residential program though. So you, you can only visit during the day, can't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, I stayed at a hotel across from the school and I was there all day, every day, five days a week for three weeks. So, um, but yeah, I, I didn't realize that one of the victims was in my group. Because you don't, you know, you introduce yourselves to each other, but you don't have to talk about why you're there. Yeah. When you do group setting type stuff, we did group like once a day where we all got together and just went over different coping skills and sleeping habits and drinking and, you know, substances and avoidance behaviors and, you know, just general classes that we would take. So I realized this guy sitting next to me was somebody that I pulled out of the bathroom, one of the last surviving victims. And he was shot? <laughs> yeah, several times. Wow. And, after, and when, I, when it hit me, because he started talking about, he said, my event, my event, and I recognized him. And then I, after class, I kind of took him away. I'm like, I don't want to freak you out, but I was at the pulse shooting. And I was like, are you the one that I had to tell that you were shot in the back and you didn't know? Like you came up to me with your arm broken and you were trampled and you had a high heel hole in your abdomen and you didn't know you were shot also. It probably all happened at the same time, you know? And he's like, you just named every one of my injuries to a T and you pointed to where I was shot, the exact spot. Like he's like, you had to have been there. Yeah, he didn't remember because he was so traumatized. Yeah, he he said... Like, as he was going through his treatment, he told me that he was starting to remember more things because he obviously just getting treated this year, and it's been that many years. He's from Atlanta, and he was visiting, and there's not as much available to him up there as there is here. All the victims were going to UCF Restores right off the bat, the ones that are local, and getting help, and he just kind of was lost in the too far away for all the programs. So... He finally got time off from work from being a teacher when they found him under a desk hiding when they set off the alarm for a uh, alarm. What do you call that? Like a drill for the school Mm -hmm. that he couldn't function anymore and he needed help because how can he help the kids if this is just a drill and he's hiding under his desk? So he realized he needed to go get help, so... That was crazy. I think I called Eric when I got into the car and I was like ugly crying. <laughs> like, <laughs> I met somebody finally that I saved because I thought everybody died, you know? It's like, I never met anybody. Like, I met other people that were there, like, as first responders or dispatchers, but I never met any victims or, sur- I mean, survivors. So. That's beautiful. That's yeah. Crazy, and he's like, it? I remember you touching me now. Like, I remember your hand, your cold glove touching me when. And pulling me out of that bath, the hole in the wall, or I couldn't get up. So that's where they breached through that hole? 
Uh-huh. That was the bathroom. So we also went to him and I, the last day of the program, he, part of his exposure was to go to the Pulse nightclub. And the owner met us there. And she had the keys and everything. And if we wanted to go inside, I didn't think it was a good idea for me because I never went inside the club that night. I was mm-hmm. on the outside and I just, yeah, you know, I didn't want to go more images. Now. Yeah. But we walked around together and they put plexiglass over the hole. And then they put like backlighting so you can see the outline of the hole in the bathroom. Hmm. So we were back there together. Interesting. Yeah, I'm supposed to be getting, um, I believe, the officer that killed him. One of the entry team that killed him should be coming on. So it's going to be interesting. Is that the one that got shot in the helmet? I don't know if it's the same guy. I'm assuming the one that got shot in the helmet probably went down momentarily. Probably, Because that was a hell of an impact. So I would think. But um, I can still see it in my, like, you're saying it and I'm seeing them panicking because they moved our um, staging rescues because the bomb dog hit on the van because they said it could be ammunition, it could be bombs, but he's threatening bombs, so we're going to say 1,000 feet back. And you know that area. Where do you put 18 rescues? Yeah, exactly. That was my first... You can't even park With all the way that, you know, how the officers, (laughs) the deputies and the officers park on our scenes in the way all the time. They were all, their cars were all over the place. It was hard to get in and out of there. And there's no officers around to say, hey, can you move your vehicle so we can get through? It was, it was chaos and it was a very tight area. So we moved right before that happened, before they finally got him. And that officer, they're like, officer down, officer down. And I could see them a block from me and it's dark. There's no light, but I can see all of the SWAT guys and they have them in this like wheelbarrow looking sked and they're like where are the rescues <laughs> and i'm like waving we're here we're down here and then they come running to me and he was fine i mean the helmet saved him he still yeah had some shrapnel but, i remember seeing the picture of it but was i was crazy. happy to know that once we got the helmet off of him that he the helmet saved his life absolutely well what was sad as well like i said i was overseas when i came back like and I can say this because it's public knowledge, the shooter went to um, Disney Springs first because mm-hmm. it was Gay Days Week, yeah, and uh, that was his initial target. And I believe, for whatever reason, shift changed. There was just too many OCSO on scene, so he is seen on camera getting out and then getting back in his car and driving away and going straight up to Pulse. And we mentioned earlier about lessons learned and ego and humility and everything that was swept under the carpet where I was working and I was so angry and so disgusted. I'm like, this is a huge near miss that needs, you know, we, we need to, com- you know, what if have Definitely. we planned that we doing training, whatever. And no, and it, you know, and it I'm, would have been even worse. The, I don't know. Well, the women, and cho- <laughs> I mean, there were children there for a start. Lots and lots of children. Oh yeah. But that. just the department size that you have and how far you are from your closest rescues compared to pulse being kind of surrounded by orlando yeah. orange county and rural two metro from the hospital the trauma yes. trauma center i know you could throw a rock and hit ormc people were dragging each other not waiting yeah you know loading up and pickup trucks and not coming through triage and yeah no, panicking I was, carrying each other 
Exactly. So, but that's another conversation in itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, then coming full circle. So now we've talked about, you know, both of your kind of journeys to kind of where you are now. So, you know, what, what support are you getting and, you know, where are you hoping to, to land as far as treatment and, you know, um, I guess, uh, yeah, position and we're talking you know retired medical retirement you know what's your end goal to be able to focus on just healing now um like quality of life and enjoying what's left and healing from what from what we've seen or medical things he's going through you know I want to be strong enough to help for him. And so I'm continuing to get treatment and I'll continue until they say I don't need it anymore. So. Eric, so over to you for a second. So for you now, I mean, you're, you're the man that has to go through the treatments. You're the man that's got to receive the diagnosis. So to talk to me, like what, what would make it as good as possible for you? Well, how, you know, what should be happening to enable you to, to pull as much positivity out of this as you possibly can? Well, after the six days ago, I kind of, Messed me up, woke me up, however you want to say it. We're going to do stuff. I don't care if I got a dollar left. We're going to do stuff. Just because it was scary. Like her telling me legitimately six months or a year or whatever. Scared me. So um, one of the guys that works for us is... a. retirement guy so i gotta get him here what do we what is our options what are we gonna do what can we do all that kind of crap and it's gonna be you know all right well if the object is we're gonna cash out in two months boom Or, oh, well, it's going to be six months or whatever it is, whatever the option is, we're going to have to have a plan. Because at the end of the day, for some reason, I got to take care of somebody. (laughs) What about, um, you know, what have been the challenges? What what are some of the barriers that um, you think shouldn't be there when it comes to getting this kind of diagnosis and working for an agency like ours? Well, honestly, one of the biggest things is probably the the cancer bill was a big thing. Not that I was really catching what was going on, but like she said, I don't remember what am I signing, what am I doing. I don't remember any of that, really. But it was a good thing to get because it made a difference for, okay, we're doing this. I don't remember it, but as she's talking about it, it makes a difference. It, it really does. But at the end of the day, I didn't remember. I any. can tell you a barrier. Yeah, yeah. Please, yeah. Let me let me know. You know, you know, kind of what I'm trying to get at. Like, what what is what has been the positive side, and and where are some of the things that have made it harder for you? Positive is that 
I think Eric's probably one of the first that's got to experience the cancer bill being into effect and getting help versus go to light duty and then get medically separated and have to pay for COBRA coverage and you already have a pre-existing condition and the strain it is because you need a caretaker most of the time and the other cannot work because they get or work part-time well don't even want to especially if you've been given a timeline yeah exactly you don't want to spend eight ten days hours a day away from a loved one that you know as you guys know you know you're not even sure what that time is going to be you got together so the one thing with the way the bill is written that i wish would change is there's only certain cancers they cover but eric fell into one of the categories but once you don't work for Orange County or where your department, it's written that you have to have your employer's insurance. You have to maintain the insurance. So if, say, Eric's disabled and he could get some kind of Medicaid or something, disability insurance that would not bankrupt his pension, to keep, you know, we have to keep their coverage or else they won't reimburse us on the out-of-pocket medical cost. So... You're hearing, I'm hearing stuff like 1500 2000 a month, depending. So that's a lot. Just so you can get your deductible back. And death benefits and stuff. If not, then you don't get that. They could potentially say, oh, you're not following the bill the way it's written. So I feel like that that wasn't a good, you know, that's a barrier. Absolutely, it's a barrier. I mean, you get sick, you know, it's, it's obviously a work-related issue. Mm-hmm. And then and the disability moment you have pension, to- 65%. So it depends on how long you have and everything. But 65%, just think about it. it most of it could be going to just your keep your health insurance. And then the other spouse is stuck taking care of you and can't work. So it's just... It's a lot. Yeah. So. So let me just flip it around the other way. If you got to design an environment for someone who, a family who one of the the partners had been diagnosed with something that was obviously pretty, pretty, uh, or terminal basically, what should that look like? Um, I feel like there could be better support um from the department maybe like i've burned a lot of vacation and sick time and just trying to hold my job you know while i take care of him and now i'm being made to come back to work on monday so it's kind of like who's going to take care of him so i can go to work So I feel like if they had like a person that could be a liaison that could help people through the steps of this new bill, this new cancer bill, instead of just getting burdened with all this paperwork and notarizing and receipts and proof and I don't know. It's it's been a lot. The union has been good. Um, The union sent 
the other vice president over. He's been shuffling papers for us, getting stuff, you know, notarizing things and turning in our paperwork. But I don't know if everybody's going to have that. Yeah. But I think it's hard for us because we're both work for the same agency. And being married, there's other things that are in place that hinder. There's trying to say that family medical leave is um, 12 weeks out of the year. Um, If you both are married and work for it, us, you have to split it. Oh, really? You don't even get 12 and 12? No. Wow. They're, They're trying to say you guys need to split the 12 weeks because it's the same qualifying event and you're married. And I'm like, for a kid, yes. Yeah. It just it just doesn't seem like everybody knows what's going on. We're kind of the guinea pigs. Well, what I, I mean, one thing that I've talked about um, a lot coming from the UK is we have national health there. So, you know, people, it's framed as socialized medicine and there's all this kind of negativity towards it. But, you know, you don't have to worry about healthcare. Like when you get ill... It's, it's, you know, like you said about mutual aid, it's basically what is in healthcare. Like, oh, you're ill? Okay, well, here's all these things to take care of you. And, you know, hopefully the, the goal is prevention rather than reaction. But, you know, the, the, the ugliest side of the way our healthcare is here is when people need it the most, there's the most red tape and the most restrictions. So whether it's socialized medicine, whether it's, a, you know, a version of within the fire service, when our men and women need us the most, should be the easiest access to care whether it's you know what you're going through or whether it's the mental health side i mean how many people have we got that are suicidal and now they're going through eap and getting sent to a marriage counselor who has no fucking idea what it's like to be a firefighter and then they end up walking out and blowing out you know blowing their brains out and i've heard these stories you know these are real stories so we we have to look at this and listen to to your story and other people's stories and you know understand that this is when we have to step in as a profession and as an employer to help you guys. Because everyone else is out there doing the job and they're fine. The rest of us can keep it going, but we have to support the ones that, well, no, I mean, to it, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're varying degrees of, of the job breaking you down. That's why I wrote the book. It's exactly that to, to educate people on that. But while the rest of us are okay, we need to be stepping together and, well, you know, banding together and supporting the ones that need us and that they're, no one should be have to worrying about insurance and fucking court cases and all this stuff mm-hmm. because you had the audacity to get cancer, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll tell you the audacity to get cancer is probably one of the things that is thinking about it for the last six days is like, how dare I, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, how dare I, you know, how dare I do that to my wife? You know, how dare I do that to my family? You know, it's horrible. How dare I do that to them? I didn't mean to. Yeah. And this is the thing you didn't, you, you signed up. And again, this isn't like blaming it all on an employer, but it's just understanding there are so many layers and we have to address all of them. But you know, you both stood on the diamond you know, in fire academy, in orientation, as fit men and women, you know, with this burning desire to make a difference in the community, 
and spent 24 hours away from your family in a department that didn't even have Kelly days, so 56 hours a week for years and years and years and years. And this thing that I, you know, I'm so determined to drive home is that the way we do it right now maximizes the chance for us getting hurt, getting sick or having mental health issues, you know? And so is it a sole reason? No, but is it an absolutely compounding reason? Yes. And it's, you know, and we have to change the way we do it. And, you know, we have to get prevention element so we stop getting so many people ill. And then the ones that do regardless, then we take so care of them. how do you them. do that? I mean, personally for me, the work week is part of it. Obviously now the education on, you know, PPE and protection and clean cab. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, you know, Plyme events, these technologies are great, but we're working on men and women into the ground. We are, you know, why is it that someone who works in Barnes and Noble can only work 40 hours a week or 38 or whatever they cap out as, but the men and women that will work a code on your three-year-old can be completely sleep deprived, you know? And then, and so there's that acute effect where you're not able to even function and do drug calcs, whatever it is. And then there's the chronic effect, which is the disease. And we see it over and over again. I mean, Bull's left now, but he was sitting there talking about how many squad members are left. Seven people dead out of 12. That is fucking awful. So, you know, something has to change. The sad thing is, like for that particular call, the 12 people on that call that were on the squads, it wasn't just the 12 people because A shift went to it. So that's 24. And then B shift went to it. That's 36. And then there's all the other people that went to it. Yeah. And even you know, another thing that people don't think about is how many of those men and women that are exposed to either that call or others then go and have children mm-hmm. and have passed now some sort of genetic abnormality to the next generation? Absolutely. Because we see that. There's a lot of pediatric cancer in the fire service too. So what's that knock-on effect as well? You know, So if we're going to ask men and women to leave their families and go protect strangers, then we have to create an environment to, for them to thrive. And we're not. We're, it's an environment for them to, to fail. And the ones that are good at this job, it's despite the working conditions, not because of it. True. So, well, I want to kind of wrap this up so I can let you guys go. We've been talking for God, over an hour and a half now. Um, are there any kind of final thoughts, words that you want to impart and people listening? I and mean, this is an international audience, so... Holy crap. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. You're a big oh, deal. Wow. <laughs> um, no, I'd just like to say thank you for letting us talk and letting Christy share her thoughts. I think her being able to talk and share was probably one of the best things out there because she has a lot to say and thought it was really important for her to say stuff. I did. I really, really did. I did. What I have to say is, um, if you're struggling with any calls to get help, don't let it send you into 
substance abuse or beating your wife or husband or kids or dog or divorce or whatever, self-destructing behavior, um, just get help. It, it works. It's not an easy process, but it's worth it. And that life is short. We've seen it every day at work, so. Enjoy your life. There's life after the fire department. There's life outside the fire department. It's not, it used to be, consume me so much, and now it's kind of on the back burner for me. I'm seeing life dif- a little differently mm-hmm. with the diagnosis Eric has, so. Trying not to sweat the small things and um, just look at the bigger picture and then enjoy each other's company. And what do you think about that? I think it's awesome. <laughs> I do. I wholeheartedly agree with her being able to talk and say what she needed to say. I think it was beautiful. I do. I do.